0: most people assume that MAS is a singular session or a couple of sessions which it absolutely isn't (laughs) like it is maximal aerobic speed is an intensity measure so the 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 concept so maximal aerobic speed it stems from the original research done in velocity and looking at velocity of vo2 max
1: with middle distance runners. Welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast sees me speaking to Nathan Heaney, who is the conditioning consultant. So he recently wrote an article on Sportsmith, which went down an absolute dream, on maximal aerobic speed, MAS, versus tempo training, The pros and cons for both, when he uses either, why he uses one over the other, at what points in time, etc, etc. So it was this that framed this uh, conversation, and we dive into the nuances of that article. So what is MAS? What are the misconceptions around MAS? How can we use it to individualize conditioning for team sports? How is it best done? Then we have a little chat around tempo training. What actually is tempo training when people talk about it? what is where where's the influence come from for tempo training what are the positives what are the negatives and where does nathan sit when it comes to both these modalities for developing aerobic capacity in team sport athletes so if you're interested in increasing your or improving the conditioning elements of your program with your athletes take a listen to the next hour it's an absolutely fantastic episode This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new ICON-X rack range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK Lab of the Year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code sportsmith 20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen and this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Nathan. Nathan Heaney, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Rob.
0: Really looking forward to the chat today.
1: My pleasure. Like I've done, it's a bit of a common theme over the last few months. People write an article, it goes down really well, we get lots of discussion and then think, how good would this be as a podcast and build it out? So this is probably the third or fourth I've done like this. So it's um, firstly, thank you for writing the article and secondly, thank you for following up with the podcast. But if anyone doesn't know who you are, Nathan, would you mind just giving us a bit of a run through of your back, brief background and then we'll yep. dive into the um, MAS tempo conditioning stuff?
0: No problems. Um, so pretty conventional introduction into sports science and strength and conditioning. So much to my uh, my family's um, disbelief, I went down the path of sport and S over accounting, which is what they were pushing me to do. But I'm certainly glad I did. And uh, I guess um, as part of my introduction into the area, um, I just studied at a university in uh, in Melbourne. But I think one thing that was quite pivotal for me during um, during that process was I. Um, had a really influential lecturer who sort of f- engaged me to to do sub- like subsequent studies. So it was a directed study and then a subsequent honours thesis. And it was during that honours thesis phase. So it was a pretty intense year of learning. And probably when I reflect on it, my my absolutely my steepest learning curve uh, throughout my my career, my SNC journey. And that honours thesis was conditioning related. So. It was um, investigating the efficacy of using the Yo-Yo IR1 test to assess aerobic fitness and determine MAS. And I guess this was underpinned by um, when I was, uh, I guess, alongside this, I was completing an internship at the Victorian Institute of Sport and I was looking at the conditioning application across a myriad of different sports. And I was sort of looking at it going, I think there's probably a better way to do this. Like I wasn't that impressed with what was being implemented. And that sort of led me down this, you know, this journey, I guess, of of conditioning application, which now has been um, sort of twelve or thirteen years, uh, thirteen years, I guess, in the making. So um, that kind of started me off on the on the conditioning related journey. And I always had a passion for team sport, and obviously I grew up playing a lot of it. And in Australia, our big sports are certainly team sport orientated. So I always thought, in the back of my mind, I thought if I, you know, given conditioning is a little bit underappreciated, and I sort of recognise that as a very young and impressionable SNC coach at the time, I thought, well, if I make it, um, I guess a bit of a niche area of knowledge, it might make me more employable, and certainly it has helped um, in certain roles um, uh, over the journey as well. So beyond that, I guess when I when I reflect on the start of my career, so obviously the the study was one aspect to it, but um, my actual working career started at the Victorian Institute of Sport. Um, so I was there for nine years. Um, and I worked across a multitude of different sports. Uh, that was an awesome foundation for me because unlike a football club or a rugby club here in Australia, you, you actually are responsible for a, almost every facet of their SNC and sports science program. So the fact that, the fact that you've got that type of exposure, um, it sort of again, enables you to refine your skills and, and improve your knowledge but also it gives you really good context as to what areas you actually really enjoy and what you're passionate about. So um, I thought that was, a, that was a terrific grounding for me. At the back end of my tenure there, I certainly had always harboured an aspiration to work in um, football. So for us, it's Australian rules football. And uh, interestingly, over the journey whilst I was at the VIs, I applied for a few jobs at different AFL clubs and, and got knocked back citing a lack of AFL experience. Eventually, I got some sort of more sub-elite football experience and then happened to secure a role within the um, like the AFL elite junior pathway, which is, um, I guess, it's a bit of a unique sitting, set, uh, setting here. Um, so I worked there for nine months. And then, fortunately for me, from there, I went to work as strength and conditioning coordinator at the Adelaide Crows for three seasons as well. So um, that was up until about 2019. And then um, sort of life changed. We had our first kid and uh, my wife and I both made the decision to relocate back to Melbourne. And uh, I, in doing so, I um, secured a, the head of athlete development and performance role at Xavier College, which is where I am now. And that's been um, an amazing experience. I've loved it. It's obviously very different to the preceding role at the Crows. But I'm, I'm really lucky that I've landed at a school that is you know, one of Australia's leading private schools, which has a really, really strong sporting pedigree and a really strong sporting tradition, and has a and prides itself on, um, I guess, the production of elite sportsmen that span, you know, the school's 140 years in age. So um, I'm really fortunate that I've I've landed there, and then I guess the last point on sort of who I am. I guess the the um, in 2020, Melbourne was in the grips of uh, <laughs> one of many COVID lockdowns. And uh, with the encouragement of my wife, I started the the conditioning consultant business. So for me, that was absolutely outside of my comfort zone. I'd always been very much loath to, um, to go down the social media route. Like I just didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel overly uh, uh, comfortable with like self-promotion, I guess. But um, after some prompting for Cara, we decided to do it and um, I'm... Incredibly glad that I have, and I, and I heeded her advice because, um, I guess fundamentally there is a really really big gap between people's conditioning and strength training knowledge, like that is absolutely apparent. And for me, I've been lucky enough to lecture at the Australian Strength Conditioning courses, so the level one and level two courses for over ten years. So I'm seeing younger, aspirational, impressionable SNC coaches all the time. So I've seen tens of thousands of them over that period. And it is very, very obvious that this is the case. So for me, the the the, the conditioning consultant business was about providing a better platform for education for young SNC coaches and sports scientists and athletes and coaches. So I think it's certainly proven really successful. The engagement with the content's been great. Um, and whilst again, it is probably niche in the sense that SNC is a, a a really broad area, and, and some people sort of pay conditioning scant regard. The people that are interested in it and invested in that area have, you know, from what they've told me, have got a lot out of the the content. So um long winded, Rob, but that's that yeah, that's that's me.
1: No, that's great. And that's why you're here today, mate, because I think it is a huge gap. It was it was a huge gap for me. It is a huge gap for me. It's a huge gap for be ninety five percent of strength and conditioning coaches out there because the the big focus is on the S rather than the C of, of strength and conditioning, um, and I'm in the midst of that two thousand nineteen Nathan questioning what's going on with the, with the firstborn and thinking what am I going to do? I'm in the midst of that now, so I definitely relate to that. But I think one the best place to start, just jumping off the back of that kind of final point of it being um, lower down the list in terms of the the priorities for education with strength and conditioning is to outline the importance of aerobic conditioning as a, as a modality and as a requirement for team sport athletes. I think that needs clarifying. So I think that still surfaces every now and again with the different types of training, I think. So I think that is probably the best place to start. Is that okay?
0: Absolutely fine. So Perfect. it is pretty obvious and very clear that aerobic fitness is important for the vast, the, you know, the vast majority of team sports. Um, however it is worth noting that its importance and emphasis within an SNC program does depend on the game and the competition demands of each sport so that's obviously something you've got to under understand before you go down the process of devising and implementing a conditioning program so when I break it down and I think of sports that have certainly a high running requirement and of which I think of Australian rules there's a whole host of you know Irish sports that that have a big, Running load, even sports like both rugby codes, definitely soccer, hockey, all those sports, they do have a really significant aerobic fitness requirement. So, when I sort of look at breaking down um, the benefit or the importance of aerobic fitness for team sports, there, there's a few layers to it. So I'll sort of work through them. So the first one for me, it it absolutely influences or positively influences high intensity running and sprinting. And what I mean by that is there's really good research to show that it that the ability to recover from high intensity actions, which then has a positive impact on your your ability to perform high intensity running, that in turn uh, positively impacts impacts coaches' ratings and perceptions of player performance. So there's some really good studies that are, that have shown that um, it increases an athlete's ability to get to contests, and as such, their their level of their a level of involvement in the game is improved. So you, if you're not getting near the contest or near the ball, you can't you can't have an impact on the game. So that's a really clear one. For those people that are okay with GPS utilisation, work rates a really common measure. So aerobic fitness is very positively associated with work rate. So meaning as your aerobic fitness improves, your work rate capacity improves. So, and, and work rate is used to describe intensity and or effort for, for team sport groups. So then we when we break down work rate a little bit, higher work rate is associated with increased game involvement then that leads to increased number of disposals. So that's particularly relevant for Australian rules football. Um, and then the other thing that's worth noting on work rate is for a whole host of different sports, work rate depends on the positions within the sports or the teams or the or the or the or the groups. So, for example, in when we look at Australian rules football, midfielders, which are sort of the guys that are congregate around the ball a lot, they often have the highest work rate. And unsurprisingly, they have the highest aerobic fitness requirement. So, again, all the once you break down and analyse the the actual sport, you can start to work out well which positions and or sports have a have a much greater aerobic fitness requirement, and that's obviously really really important. Dan Baker and I put together a paper back in 2015, looking at normative MAS values across a multitude of different sports. So it was clear based on that paper that the measure is valid and reliable for, for 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 its use in terms of training prescription, but then also ascertaining and determining what the normative values are for sports, both at the elite level, but then also when we work back and start to go, well, what are the aerobic fitness requirements for an under-16 footballer, under-18 footballer, under-21 footballer? And what are the expectations for certain positions when you get to the elite level? So provided that provides... Practitioners and coaches with a really clear framework across both female and male sports um, in terms of what they should um, and how they should approach their aerobic conditioning when they're working with sports. So that, I think that's a pretty good summary. The only one I probably haven't touched on enough is um, its importance for recovery. So recover, this is probably um, largely misunderstood. So think of recovery as two, fac- two facets. So the first one is improved recovery within training sessions and games. So if you imagine you were tracking someone's oxygen consumption or heart rate in a training session, once they've ceased a training drill, how quickly can they recover from that drill? Or conversely, they're in a game, their ability to transition and get involved in the game, and then there's a lulling play, how quickly can they recover from those high intensity actions, which then enable them to perform the next action? So that's really, really important. And then the one that's, again, probably not understood well enough and, and not emphasized enough is improved recovery between training sessions and games. So for me, I, I regard that as like a, a big, that, that those, if you don't have adequate aerobic fitness or you're not adept aerobically, the cumulative effect of being unfit or not as, not as aerobically fit as you need to be has a massive impact. When you think about the, the course of a pre-season or an entire in season period when, when it is shown, and Tanya Gallo, um, based out of North Melbourne Footy Club a few years ago, did a great paper that showed um, for every second, there was a decrease in 2K time. So meaning, sorry, a slower 2K time. So they were less fit. There was a subsequent increase in session RPE. So that would just compound over the course of whatever the season is, pre-season, in-season. So I think that there are a few layers to how I think about why aerobic fitness is important for team sport athletes.
1: Zaptania Gallo, did you say? Yes. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. I'll write that down. So, why do you think aerobic training has got the bashing, or continue to continue to get the bashing that it does? Do you think it's the the kind of long, slow running that people generally associate with this type of training?
0: Yeah, I think that's spot on, Rob. I think it's, I think it is underpinned by a couple of factors. So, one, aerobic, or I guess, aerobic training is probably. Uh, synonymous with endurance athletes, for starters. So, and that's that makes sense. You know, the the the, the training, a lot of the research that I've based my, um, I guess my work off, does stem from middle distance research. But the beauty and the challenge for practitioners is, is to work out how to adapt good research and filter it into a into, into your environment. And that's what I've done with. I guess, my approach to team sport athletes. I have used this a lot with endurance athletes and it works incredibly well as well. But I think, I guess, to back to the the original question was, it it is synonymous with, I guess, endurance athletes and, and unsurprising because they are physiologically based athletes and they need to have elite aerobic fitness to compete. So then people associate that with continuous running or really long intervals, that type of work. And then people go, well, my, that doesn't suit my group of netballers or, or rugby athletes. So uh, we don't need it. We don't need it. And that's when I guess people tend to revert to other methods, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So I think that's that's probably one of the key factors. And then I think it's it is largely underpinned by what we alluded to um, initially. There's just a misunderstanding of aerobic conditioning. So people either aren't interested. They pay it at scant attention. Certainly scant attention in regard to how much investment they will put in for their strength training program. So then those, the combination of those two things means that people go, oh, well, you know, aerobic, we don't need it, I'll just do some tempo runs or I'll do some fartlek runs and that's good enough. Like that's all we need. So there's just, I guess, a, a much, I guess much less emphasis and much less care, I would say placed on it in some circles.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. Right, we're gonna dive into the, the the meat of the conversation, which is maximal aerobic speed to MAS and tempo running. And that was, like I said, right at the start, was the basis of your article. Very balanced view with a nice little, well, lots of uh, takeaways at the end. So I think the best place to start, again, maybe quash some misconceptions around this. But what is MAS? And probably even more importantly, what isn't MAS based on the misconceptions that I've mentioned?
0: Yep, yep. And this is such a key point because... I've been involved in the occasional Twitter spat with with uh, with other coaches and practitioners. and the generally most people assume that mas is a singular session or a couple of sessions, which it absolutely isn't. <laughs> like it is maximal aerobic speed is an intensity measure. So the the, the concept, so maximal aerobic speed, it stems from, the original research done in velocity, looking at velocity of VO2 max within with middle distance runners. So that's you know that's the gold standard measure. But clearly, the application of velocity of VO2 max is limited in a team sport setting because there's a whole host of issues with it. You don't have a you don't have access to a lab. It's expensive. It's onerous. It's time. Yeah, there's lots of time constraints. Blah blah blah. Those things mean that the concept of maximum aerobic speed was introduced and hence why it's been used so well across certain sectors. So when we think about maximum aerobic speed and, it, and its major benefit, I guess we can break it down into a few steps. So the first step is the identification of um, what test provides you with the most valid and reliable MAS measure. But alongside that, we're also looking at determining um, and assessing aerobic fitness. So that's that's almost like first step that you've got to do. From there, once we've conducted the test, we are determining maximum aerobic speed. So the nuance behind that does depend on the test you use. But again, that's beyond the scope of, of today's podcast. We then use it to prescribe training effectively. And then, we, then the beauty of this method and model, because it is so objective, is you can really, really stringently analyze your sessions. So for example, I'll often look at what I've prescribed, how the athletes have performed the session and go, okay, how accurate was my prescription? What wiggle room do I have? What progressions can I make beyond this session? So it's a really clear, uh, it provides me with a really clear and objective overview of, of how to approach the training. So I think that's the that's probably one of the, the, I guess the key differentiators, which is really misunderstood. It is not a session, it is an intensity measure used to prescribe objective conditioning.
1: And I think the one thing, and I mean you may mention this, there's there's tools out there that'll help practitioners use that intensity measure to go, uh, what what kind of adaptation do I want? And how do I how how far above that do I go? How far below that do I go? And there's like I say, tools out there that can help that prescription side as well.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's where when we think about the actual hit prescription that um, it is for some people it is uh, very overwhelming like and that's feedback I've got from a lot of people like they'll, they'll get to writing a strength program and they it's sort of they they know exactly what to do that it's second nature to them they understand the the training variables that, that they've got to manipulate when it comes to conditioning prescription a lot of people get to it and go they're sort of left scratching their head going oh I don't really know what to do and especially when you throw for, for what people perceive initially as an added complexity with the introduction of maximal aerobic speed, they are sort of left um, a little bit wanting and, and don't really understand. So, absolutely, there's, there's a multitude of different tools available. So, if we think about the, the, you know, that first step of the process, which is determining an accurate maximal aerobic speed value, depending on the test you use, there's a multitude of different regression equations available, which help, irrespective of the test you use, help you to elicit and ascertain the most accurate MAS possible within the constraints of your environment. And then from there, you can be much more confident with your prescription. So I think the, 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 I guess the major point behind that is I completely acknowledge that in some settings, and I've been involved in these myself, even though you're the expert in the area, you don't always get the final say on the test use for fitness testing. You know, some sports have um, uh, a, a there's a particular cultural significance with a certain test, so they're loath to change it. So as such, it might be a beep deep test or a time trial variation. There, there are equations available which help tidy up the, the determination of MAS, which you need to do first and foremost before you even bother prescribing training using MAS.
1: Excellent. And you mentioned in the article about Eurofit and one of Dan Baker's articles that maybe got taken out of context and misunderstood. Would you mind just explaining that for us? So I think people will have heard of that and a lot of people would have read that article, however many years ago it was.
0: Yeah. And Dan, again, I hope my article didn't come across uh, being critical of Dan. It was a great article and a terrific overview of maximal aerobic speed and how it can be used. I think what happened though, which is through no fault of Dan's people said, because he wrote it in such a way that it was really simple to follow, which was which was the why it, why it gained so much traction. Most people thought, well, I like this concept. I'm just going to implement it as he's written it. So really, all they did was go, okay, maximal aerobic speed. I'm going to implement it, and it's two different types of sessions. It's either the EuroFit method or the or the work with active recovery method, which is 170 the the rectangle. So for, from I've had. Countless people come up and say to me that they, they are prescribing MAS and it is just one of those two sessions, but more often than not, it is the EuroFit method. So, um, and I think this is where some of the, I guess, um, the misunderstanding around its use, I think this is where a lot of it stems from because if you approach it like that, you have done maximum aerobic speed. The concept, and and the training tool, a massive disservice. So. I often see people that have really strong track and field backgrounds. They're often very anti-MAS. And that's fine. Like, everyone can have their own bias and their own approach and, and training philosophy. But largely, for most of them, it's underpinned by this, I guess, this sort of misunderstanding. So I think that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's a really key point. Um, and then I think the other point that, that, is, that is worth highlighting is there's two trains of thought from people, too. They either think the method or the concept is either way too fatiguing, or not fatiguing enough, which again highlights the lack of understanding of it as a concept. Because the beauty of MAS, much like when you prescribe using a percentage of RM, or when you use velocity for uh, for strength training, you can change it. You know, if you want, if you if you want to reduce the intensity of a session, reduce it by two and a half percent, reduce it by five percent. You've gone from a high intensity stimulus to a moderate intensity, and that might be suffice. So. Again, whenever I hear those arguments, it's it's for me alarm bells go off, and I think, well, they just don't understand the concept. Um, And I think the the probably the starkest example I can provide, and this comes up a lot when I conduct those um, ASCA courses, and also when I've I've conducted a lot of consultancy through um, TCC. I often see practitioners try and implement. Um, MAS, but have very limited practical experience doing it. So it's great that they're trying, but they'll prescribe a session with a 10% MAS range. So like that completely defeats the purpose of of the prescription because the whole point of prescribing objective conditioning is that it is accurate and effective. So that would be akin to prescribing um, strength training with a 10% RM differential, which people would never do. So... Again, those like those layers of of uh, misconception just permeate the industry. So I think hopefully, you know, by virtue of some of these articles and I guess platforms such as TCC, there's obviously heaps of other a few others out there that also provide really good reputable conditioning related information. But hopefully, we can slowly um, change the perception that around MAS and its application. I'm not saying that it's the only way to do things. I absolutely that's not the case. And I'll talk about how I've used Tempo later in the podcast, and it's, a, it's an awesome tool to use. It just has some limitations when we talk about aerobic fitness adaptation.
1: Would you mind giving people a, a little bit of a guideline or maybe guidelines of how we can use percentage of MAS to hit different physical uh, adaptations? Is yeah, right? I think...
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. So I think probably the easiest way to break it down is if we break session types down. So if we think about long interval, for example, so think anywhere from one to four minutes, I'm not going to go into the threshold type intervals because, again, I, I don't think it, it'll sort of resonate that strongly with your audience. But if we think of starting with long interval as, a, as, a, as the first uh, interval type, think of one to four minutes, Generally, the range there is 92.5% MAS all the way through to 100%. So you've got sort of a 7.5% MAS range that caters for three to four minutes differential. So that gives people a bit of a guide as to the the, the nuance. And then when we start looking at short interval, this is where it does get a lot more complex because there's, I guess, a couple of layers to it. So if we think about short aerobic interval, we're looking at, uh, sort of 2-to-1, 3-to-1 work-to-rest ratios with this type of approach. And by virtue of that, we are looking at an MAS range of about 97.5 all the way through to 105 at the top end, 110. But that's, that's very rare. And then once we move beyond 110% MAS, we start transitioning into something entirely different. That is called short super maximal high-intensity interval training. And that's when we're looking at prescribing above 110% MAS and then once we do that we then introduce another concept entirely which I use a lot and I've I've, you know I've recorded a webinar on for, for TCC and that is obviously anaerobic speed reserve and I guess the the main rationale for that is um, if I reflect back on my time at the VIS so probably about 10 years ago now um, I was um doing exactly what I've sort of spoken to you about. And I've been, I was prescribing some short super maximal hit with um, a hockey group. And I'd sort of worked through sequentially using a relatively linear uh, periodization model with the conditioning, got to this conditioning type. And I sort of was watching, I was running the sessions and I was noticing that there was lots of shuffling. I was having to shuffle players up and down groups a lot, much more than any other session. So I was sort of scratching my head thinking, why am I doing, like, why am I having to do this? This is sort of unlike me. I don't have to change it too much. I kind of, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty confident with my prescription. Anyway, I sort of got onto the uh, ASR concept, which really at that point in time, there was a scarcity of available research on. So this was back in 2013. And uh, there was, it'd been used a little bit for performance prediction um, by, um, by, I guess, a, a few track and field groups. And then Martin Bichette had looked at it a little bit more, but more through tolerance to high-intensity interval training. So then I looked at it for the purpose of guiding maximal hit prescription. And I found that despite when you, you know, despite looking at, if you looked at the average distances for the group, they were basically, there was no difference. But one thing that became really apparent when I implemented the ASR concept with this type of conditioning is that it resulted in a much more consistent stimulus. So what I mean by that is, for players that were identified as fast or slow, this concept accounted for that much better. So, for example, the faster athletes definitely were, you know, they were forced to run more distance in the in those specific repetitions and those sessions. And then conversely, the slower athletes were forced to run um, less distance. And once I implemented that approach, and I've, I've you know, I've written a, a paper on it, um, the the stimulus I was imposing was much more consistent, and I wasn't having to shuffle the players around all the time. So, I found like that was a, an awesome um, avenue for me to use. And and since then I've I've you know whenever I've gone into this phase of or this type of conditioning prescription, uh, it is my go to. I I would never prescribe using just a percentage of MAS for that type of conditioning. So, very long winded answer, Rob. Sorry to to your original question, but. It gives us, a, I guess we've sort of broken down um, the the sort of the main conditioning types that people would use for MAS. And then obviously there's there's one that I've kind of left out and that is the short anaerobic supermaximal work or otherwise known as speed endurance work or tempo work. And again, there's a few different avenues for that, but I guess we'll, we'll, we can cover that a little bit later in the podcast.
1: Absolutely. I had um, Phil Scott, who's England cricket S&C coach, And he came on a couple of weeks ago and outlined his use of anaerobic speed reserve with, with England cricket with really good results. So you guys should definitely, definitely talk on that, but it seems to be getting some traction, maybe a lot different from the environment that it was in 2013 with anaerobic speed reserve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's, there's a couple of layers to, I guess, uh, Gareth Sanford obviously did some great work. And I remember back in about 2015, I caught up with, caught up with him in Melbourne for coffee to chat, exactly this concept. So he, um, I guess I, you know, he sort of saw the original work that I did and he's absolutely expanded upon it immensely, which is which is awesome to see. And he's taken it um, an absolutely another level and he's looked at it with, with um, elite, in, like middle distance runners, which is awesome to see. And then obviously he then introduced that speed reserve ratio concept, which I think definitely has a lot of value. Um, I guess the complexity around that is obviously you're sort of self-selecting your, your ratios, but that's fine. I think it's, I've kind of looked at it. I've, I've done that for a few of the squads I've worked with. And absolutely, I, I think there's there's real benefit in um, going through that process where you sort of differentiate between um, more aerobically dominate dominant athletes versus more anaerobic athletes. And then, you know, as per that original research I did, you have a big cluster in the middle where you can sort of throw quite a few different options at them and they'll they'll respond accordingly and 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 tolerate re- tolerate a wide variety of training really really well so yeah it's um it's certainly more popular and i think um and i think it's you know with good reason i think it's it has really good effect and can be used across a wide variety of training types that are often used with uh with with a wide variety of team sports
1: so the second half of this podcast we have a chat around tempo training what it is what adaptations we can get from tempo training how it compares to using mas for aerobic development so a fantastic part two coming up with nathan this episode of the pace performance podcast is sponsored by kitman labs Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology, and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and championship rugby through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience. They've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance, optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And also sponsoring this episode is Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction for recovery? Hytro has developed the world's first BFR wearable, unlocking the recovery benefits of BFR to sport athletes. BFR is no longer just for one-on-one physio or rehab. Hytro allows teams to use this safe and scalable sports BFR device post exercise to dramatically enhance recovery. So whether in the changing room post game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hytro has created a simple and effective tool to allow BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously, safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at Hydro.com or email Warren on Warren at to find out how Hydro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge. And now back to the episode with Nathan. So for the next 20-ish minutes, we're going to dive into the murky area of tempo training, tempo running. Um, But I first want to ask you to just clarify, because I know there's there's a lot of, uh, we seem to be talking a lot about misconceptions, There's a lot of misconceptions around what tempo training actually is. It was something I spoke to Gareth about when he came on and did a two-part podcast on um, anaerobic speed reserve and, and condition as a whole. When people read team sport coaches talking about tempo running, tempo training, what do they actually mean?
0: Yeah, so um, it's a good question. And I would say, so by and large, they are, people are referring to the traditional track and field distances that would be used. uh, So think of 100 metres, 150s, 200s, 250s, 300s, but most commonly they sort of sit between 102 meters, 100 and 200 meters rather. And they are, I guess what I would describe as controlled rhythm focused high speed runs that are completed over those distances. So probably one of the, I guess one of the key points that I often see with their application is that they are relatively subjective with their prescription. So meaning there's not a little, not a lot of differentiation or adjustment in speed that people should run based on their speed profile. So we, when we're at the Crows, we use these a lot and we use them through, I guess, we we use them for two, um, I guess, supposed benefits. So the first was exactly what I've discussed. When the guys were warming up, we wanted to induce a controlled high-speed run to elicit controlled high-speed running. So, you know, to tick off our, our certain GPS metrics, but then also allow them to, to work on rhythm and and control and coordination in an unfatigued state. So that was really important. One of the key aspects there was we would tailor the say it was 150s, we would tailor the target time based off groupings of max speed. So it makes sense if someone's got a someone's got a max speed of 36, they should obviously be doing the 150 at 70% or 75% much faster than someone with a max speed of 30. So for me, that was one of the key issues I identified with tempo running application. The secondary use use we used was, and I I touched on this in the article, was when we think about, so there's quite a few sports where high-speed running is obviously fundamentally important, both from a performance, but also injury mitigation standpoint. So for us, when we had some of our key training sessions in our specific preparation phase, we would have key high-speed running metrics that certain players have to meet, and that was based off their individual high-speed running profile. So let's just call it 500 meters for the sake of this podcast. So let's say at the end of the training session, a certain player, whilst they were targeting 500, only reached 300. There was a deficit of 200 meters that we met with what we called short anaerobic supermaximal hit. And that's where I prescribed, like an example would be 30 90s, So one to three work to rest at mass plus ASR. And we, we basically did the number of reps required to bridge the gap. And it was tailored, so there was five different groups based on mass plus ASR rankings, meaning those that had high aerobic fitness and high ASR, they were obviously running the furthest all the way down to our some of our slowest athletes. And the benefit of that model was it, it incentivized trying to tick off their high-speed running in training because there was definitely capacity to do that. So not every athlete had to do this. There might have been a subsection of like ten or fifteen who either had very lofty high-intensity running bands or targets, um, and/or athletes that just struggled to uh, to complete their training with the adequate intensity for a a whole host of different reasons. And some of it might have been position. So that's kind of how we used, I guess, that in a, a in a practical setting across two different prescription methods. One using percentage of max speed where we have a more favorable, a much more favorable rest to work ratio. And then when we start to refine that and bring it back to a one to three, where your ability to recover from those efforts becomes more important, that's when I use Mass Plus ASR because I think the inclusion of your aerobic fitness is important because that fundamentally underpins how you recover from those efforts. And that was really, really apparent when we ran these sessions.
1: From your experience in talking to practitioners probably across the world, Is there a common thread of people not individualizing and not being objective on the prescription of tempo and it's more subjective and athlete self-selected?
0: In short, yes. I think that's absolutely the case. And for me, that was probably one of my biggest gripes with its application was coming from quite an objective and I guess an analytical conditioning approach. When I was, and and in some cases I sort of was, almost forced to use this method a little bit and I was happy to trial it and use it and and, and again I, I definitely see the benefit in it when used at the right time and prescribed in the right manner but by and large what I was seeing was a very subjective approach which then led to a very inconsistent stimulus and then what I was seeing was really really fast athletes that would you know benefit immensely from this work they were they were having to do 150s in 23 seconds. Hardly challenging for them. Works out to be about 60% of their max speed. Whereas fast, slower athletes were then trying to run with these guys and really stretching themselves. So there was a real disconnect in in application. So I think the advent of really accessible GPS technology now, and there's been good research that shows you don't need timing gates or you don't need to conduct sprint testing to determine accurate max speed values for, for team sport groups provided you you spread them, um, you know, quite regularly, so weekly. Um, if you do that, then you can use the the GPS data, the max speed data you get from your GPS through training and games to then just easily categorize the groups. And we did that uh, really successfully. I do that currently at Xavier. So again, that's a, uh, a junior program, but, you know, that's the type of approach we take. So if it's good enough for me to run there, you know, I think it's absolutely good enough for elite sporting clubs to, to use
1: for those post like post training top-ups that you mentioned with the example with the 500 aim and the actual 300 how many groups would you have how how many how many groups would you split the gr- bigger group into to make it as individualized as possible without being overwhelming
0: yeah that that's a really good question because that's where some people uh, i think when they test and then determine MAS whether it's mass only or mass plus ASR that, that does bamboozle them. They're like, well, where do I start? How do I group them? So there's a few layers to that. But this to, to this specific question, we, across a group of 45, we had five groups. So, and that was probably enough. We could have stretched it to a sixth and meaning we probably would have had one that was more front-ended, so a, an even faster group. But in the end, we probably didn't need it because those guys were often hitting their targets. So it probably didn't warrant uh, the the that the inclusion of the sixth group so yeah five groups and what we found was it was you know, incredibly accurate so we had in the thirty nineties we probably had almost like a fifty or sixty meter differential between fastest and slowest group for the thirties but the the perceived exertion for those efforts was so similar and it was because they were they were you know similar like they were in terms of their mass plus ASR capacity they were really evenly matched. So just meant that the guys at the front had the, the desirable combination of good aerobic fitness and high ASR, whereas guys at the end, they could have been really effective footballers for us, but they played different positions and they didn't have the same speed profile. So I think it was, I think it was a, a really good method. And I, again, it was something that we, when I was at the Crows, we, we sort of conducted a few internal reviews and this was a method we implemented off the back of one of them. And I thought we implemented it with with really good success.
1: Do you think with the influence of track and field and sprint groups across the world that we'll see more team sport coaches look to the tempo type running as a way of conditioning? Is that something you're seeing or not? Yeah, yeah. I think there's definitely a a bias
0: in those, I, I guess, people that or practitioners that come from that background and or are mentored by people that have come from that background, you absolutely oh, I've see that. Francis's
1: i read book, Nathan.
0: Yes, yes, or, or, <laughs> or that. So uh, I guess it's, so absolutely, you do say that. And I think that's, and again, that's fine, but I think it's just acknowledging what the limitations of that approach are. So I think it's, as I alluded to in the article, it's, it's not the panacea for conditioning development or, or, or physical development. It is, uh, it's a great training tool to use at the appropriate time when you're seeking a specific adaptation, and unfortunately, when you, again, and I think one thing I really want to touch on here is when we think about adaptations for tempo running, I think the there is a misconception that it, it that it is this panacea. So, so when we think about trying to use it for improving aerobic fitness, I think one thing that's really worth highlighting is that when we compare novice athletes versus intermediate and then advanced or elite, there's a big difference in. Um, window of adaptation. So what I mean by that is, you could run tempo runs for novices, and they probably will get a pretty d- decent aerobic fitness improvement. But they'll improve. They'll improve from anything. It's not until you get to the higher end, or an athlete with a much more, um, much more extensive training background, and where you're trying to eke out much smaller gains to 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 help them achieve their goals, their or and, and improve their performances. That that type of work does not improve aerobic fitness anymore. It, when you look at the the plethora of available research on aerobic fitness adaptation, it can't improve it because a one to four work to rest ratio has never been shown in the research to to, to improve aerobic fitness markedly um, and over a long period of time. So certainly those those um, there's some of the research that shows sprint intervals work, but again you've got to question you've got to look question the group the training the training status of the group that they they they're using this approach with so once you once you delve a bit deeper into that they're often as i'm alluding to novice or untrained athletes so again goes back to the point that they'll improve uh, improve from anything but if we think about tempo for eliciting anaerobic adaptation it's awesome i just think it can be refined by a few different avenues and i sort of the way i benchmark it is if the work to rest ratio is 1 to 2 or 1 to 3 I'll use mass plus ASR. When we go one to four and beyond, I think percentage of max speed is perfect. So I think for most people, that is that is pretty easy to do. Even if you don't have max speed data, after you've conducted a series of flies over the course of a four-week period, it's pretty obvious who's fast, who's slow, who's average. So then it can be as simple as your 150s, what's your target time for the fast group? What is what's your target time for the average group? What's your target time for the
1: slow group? They shouldn't be the same. I think this topic is a perfect example of social media people with social media influence peddling a particular side of the argument and people jumping on that side. I this could be for any topic in our industry or probably any industry that is. But I think this in particular, because people have such a strong bias towards one or the other. And I think that probably adds to the confusion because people jump on the bandwagon, but maybe don't quite understand the the principles and the the science behind it. Would you, is that something you'd agree with? Absolutely,
0: absolutely. So I think it is, yeah. I think there is a there is a lot of that, and I think it's often the loudest voices in the social media space. Um, I guess are proponents of um, this type of training. So, I mean, that's their prerogative. That's their training philosophy. But I guess, for me, the the objection to that was that they don't actually understand what MAS is. So, and that's, again, another argument for another day. But I think it's, it's important that before people um, pick a particular side, they actually appreciate and understand what both sides offer. So I think that's where I think with with the the invite to do the article for you, hopefully I was just able to provide um, an overview of what MAS is quite accurately. And hopefully this podcast um, sort of adds a few other layers onto that so that people can go, well, yeah, I'll I'll consider using maximal aerobic speed. Um, I've got a better comprehension of what it is. I know how to determine it. I have a bit of a feel for how to prescribe it. I'm going to trial it and see how it goes. You might not like it. That's fine. But at least you've you've got a better appreciation and understanding of what actually it is. I think that's really key. So it's sort of, I think for most people, when they look at strength training principles or plyometric principles, I think people are happy to refute them after, after investigating them more thoroughly. Whereas I feel with MAS, it is, oh, we don't do that. We don't like that session. And again, this is, it goes back to the point that it's, it's not a session. It is. It's an intensity measure used to prescribe objective conditioning. And the point I really wanted to make clear in your art, in the article was, it can be used right across the intensity spectrum. So you can prescribe active recovery runs with it. You can prescribe steady state runs. I've prescribed people. I've prescribed people marathon. You know marathon events using a percentage of MAS as a bit of a guide, underpinned by critical power and critical speed or that that concept. So all the way through to the short super maximal stuff that we've spoken about. So it is, it's is—it's an incredibly versatile tool if you know how to use it.
1: I think one thing that gives me comfort, and I knew it would do based on our back and forth on email and the article that you wrote, is that you've outlined, this is the benefits of this. This is the benefits of this. This is how I would use one and the other depending on the adaptation that I want. Here's my balanced view. That may not get you the hundred thousand followers on Instagram because people wanna people wanna see someone down the hill of one particular, you know, one particular side. But I think listening to someone like yourself who has that balanced view does actually does both, which is like, wowzer, wow, crazy. Um, is yeah, like I say, gives me comfort. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Giving some um, some balance in this conversation. And
0: I, yeah, thanks Robin. I think it's, I clearly I use MAS a lot. So I'm, I'm a, obviously a big advocate of its application and its use. But I think the point I was really trying to make for you is if aerobic fitness is a key goal for your team, your squad, your sport, whatever it is, there are, it is a really viable option to help you achieve it. And one thing I haven't touched on in the podcast, which is one of the, I guess one of my um, one of the most important aspects of its application is the consistency of stimulus that it imposes and it induces. So for me, when I think about the biggest challenges associated with team sport groups, and that this spans all the way from sub-elite groups all the way through to elite, there's always a disproportionate amount of athletes in relation to coaches. It obviously gets more disadvantageous and and more challenging at the sub-elite level. So for me. The ability to prescribe something in a really effective, both physiologically and time, um, it, it, the ability to prescribe something that elicits a, a good stimulus doing that, but then also more importantly, it's a consistent stimulus across the group. And I uh, it's sort of I reflect on a again another example from the VIS where I ran, I was working with a hockey group, that same hockey group I re- referred to earlier, over two identical preparations run over two consecutive years. So the first preparation was where we used a traditional MAS guided approach for conditioning. Um, so, you know, pre post testing, the, 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 stimulus, it resulted in a really significant improvement in aerobic fitness, which I was really confident it would. Um, but the really key thing was the consistency of adaptation was, was, was as I expected. So, you know, there was only the, the standard deviation was quite low relative to the percentage improvement. The following year, changing coach, um, uh, I guess a more European style coach, so he was big on using small-sided games. So I, you know, I sort of said, well, we had good success with this last year. Anyway, that was fine. We eventually got to a point where he was sta- a staunch believer in this, and I thought, you know what, this is a really good opportunity for me to trial something different. Let's see how it works. So we used um, live GPS tracking to provide targets for athletes. If they didn't meet targets, they did top-up conditioning. So I tried to make it. As engaging and as accountable as, as possible, and unsurprisingly, at the end of the, the intervention, some improved, some regressed. So the the, the whole point of this is that the, when you think about other methods that are a bit more subjective or a bit harder to monitor and control objectively, the the, the byproduct of that is that you get a much more scattered outcome and there's much more variation in your results. So for me, when I think about team sport application, that is definitely not what you want. And when we and when we think about um, the use of the speed reserve ratio, the whole point of that is to come up with um, training methods or training types that suit the profile of the athletes, which then hopefully in turn result in good adaptation for them. They're not doing things they don't like, and that discourages them from from engaging in the activity. So, yeah, I think for me that that's... That's one thing that I probably failed to mention at the start and I think it's so critically important when we think about um, conditioning application for team sport groups.
1: Perfect. So good. You mentioned a few resources as we've gone along, but is there any particular resources that you would direct people to go and read or go and watch or go and listen to when it comes to this kind of topic? Or condition as a whole for that matter.
0: Yeah, yes, yes. So there's... Uh, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I've, I've I've read a lot of the scientific literature. So there's a lot of people that aren't that interested in that. So um, I think there is a couple of key articles in that that are absolutely worth reading. Um, so there's obviously the Martin Bichette and Paul Lawson reviews that are that are, they've done an amazing job of really succinctly covering really, I guess, more complex topics. But they do in um, a, quite a succinct manner. So I'll admit for people that haven't got a great comprehension of conditioning, that can be tough reading because they're laden with acronyms and the like. So they take they take a bit of rereading, I would say and that's that's you know coming from someone who's I think well versed in the area. So they're, they're great resources for people to use. And then uh, and then I guess obviously there's there's um, Dan Baker's article, which is a, I guess a more simplified version. I guess I'm biased like I think the, the content I'm producing through, um, TCC or the Conditioning Consultant Instagram page, um, I think is really valuable, and I, I try and um, create content that sort of suits both team sports, but also endurance athletes. So we I create like a bit of balance there, but there probably is a bit of a bias towards um, team sport application, and I think that's probably that stems from uh, I guess the followership of the the page. Now it definitely is a it's kind of it's kind of morphed from what initially was probably more athlete orientated like people looking for individualized running programs and things like that and and training plans to coach education like the I would say 80 percent of our followers now are sports scientists SNC coaches and I think the 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 probably the the business has pivoted a bit more into education and I've recorded you know three workshops that are pertaining to conditioning application and then just earlier this year I recorded a an anaerobic speed reserve webinar which Covered it's app- covered ASR application at both the elite and sub-elite level because often people say the the issue with ASR is that it's too hard to apply in a sub-elite setting and I acknowledge it can be tricky when you don't have all of the available resources but I um that that webinar covered how you can do that um, really well at, at at both elite and sub-elite levels so yeah that that's I guess a bit of an overview Rob read the articles on on your website clearly as well that's a that's another great option. And, um, and I, and I did listen to the, the, before I came onto this, I listened to the, um, the ASR podcast that you did with, with, is it Phil Scott?
1: Phil Scott, correct. Yeah. yeah. So I,
0: I yeah. listened to that. And again, that was really informative and it's, it's great to hear, um, uh, I guess, practical application of, of a, of a concept. And again, it's, I probably approach conditioning in a slightly different manner, but I certainly left that podcast thinking, you know, i I'll certainly what I'd like to try a couple of different things, and I think some of his concepts that he covered in your in your podcast. I think when you think about transitioning through different phases of preseason and even in season periods, I think those more specific preparation phases, I think his approach is is awesome because you would assume that guys have almost ticked off and met their requisite level of aerobic fitness. So then, how do we maintain it through um, training methods and training types that are befitting? of those individuals and those groups. So I really like that. And it got me thinking about ways I could tailor and tweak conditioning application in those, those two different phases.
1: Perfect. Thanks, mate. Glad you, glad you enjoyed it. Obviously 99.9% credit goes to Phil for bringing the info. He <laughs> just uh, directing things as I do, but um, last but not least the conditioning consultant Instagram page, which is where all the information is. What is that?
0: Yeah. So the handle is at the conditioning consultant. So uh, pretty easy Easy. to remember. Um, But yeah, I've sort of touched on it a little bit, but yeah, I guess the the overarching theme is providing um, information pertaining to conditioning for a wide variety of um, practitioners, coaches, athletes. So um, I've had amazing interaction since starting the page. So that's been, um, as I said, alluded to at the start, I, I'm really glad I did it. Like I certainly went out of my comfort zone um, and it's it's been like a, a bit of a labor of love in the sense that it, I never knew how long it took to create content until I started. And I was like, wow, this is time consuming. Who would have thought? Like you kind of flick through Instagram thinking, not even considering how long stuff takes to make. So, um, oh, it's been great. I've loved it. And I think one thing that it's hopefully done is for a whole subsection of people that I've engaged with, it's given them a much better appreciation of conditioning as a concept and and i often often think about when i lecture at those aca courses and I, I love doing that because i love having uh you know an impact on on younger impressionable snc coaches that are coming through the the australian industry i i i love the feedback i get from them that they often leave thinking wow this is the conditioning stuff you presented is so different to what i've been doing And I love that because it sort of, for some of them, it triggers, that's the trigger for them to completely revamp the way they approach it. So, and I think, you know, if you do that for a a subsection of people, I have no doubt that what they're prescribing, their teams, their groups, their athletes is going to be better for it. So, or, or at least they're going to be much better educated as to when they should use different types of conditioning. So I hope via the conditioning consultant page, you know, people just have a better understanding and appreciation of, of conditioning principles, but then obviously, you know, what we've discussed today, uh, a much sounder knowledge of uh, the, the concept, maximal aerobic speed, but also then its, it's subsequent application.
1: Perfect. I think that's a great place to round up and just say thank you. Thank you for writing the article. It's gone down a dream, created lots of discussion, lots of interaction. And thank you for following up with the podcast and uh, and diving a little bit deeper into some of the topics. So Nathan, I'm going to let you go. Crack on with your Friday evening, but I uh, really appreciate your time and look forward to keeping in touch.
0: Thanks, Rob. Thanks for the invite to do both. It's uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So um, yeah, much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks,
1: mate. Speak soon. See you, Rob. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 420 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Nathan for giving up his time to come on and chat through his recent article on Sportsmith and also dive a little bit deeper into some of the thoughts that he, ha- that he has on conditioning the aerobic system. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Kitman Labs, Hytro, and Play for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in, would we'll love any feedback you have on this episode, whether you agree or disagree, whether you're an MAS person, whether you're a tempo training person, all feedback is welcome and look forward to chatting to you next week.